It has been what feels like a long time since I have said this. Children may be dismissed to children's church. thinking about it and I'm just thinking that maybe I should say I'm okay with you just saying amen during the sermon instead of using those things. Don't let me come down there and have to take that away from you. Okay. Revelation chapter 19. Let's look there together in verse 11. We'll read 11 through 16 and then we are going to go to Revelation chapter 20. But first, Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Down to... Chapter 20, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended after that. He must be set free for a short time. And I saw the thrones which were seated, those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part In that first resurrection, the second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when that thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In a number, they are like the sand on the seashore. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word again. You are a God who is personally concerned about each and every one of us and you personally speak to us through your word, not some God far away 
who somehow wound up the world and left us, but you were a God who has walked with us through the fire and the flood and will lead us into your promises yet to come. We pray you'd lead us in this moment here. Help me. Uh, Lord, I, especially this day, uh, I need your help to know that which you want said and not said. But also help each of us to hear what you're saying to us, not in a sense of picking and choosing what we want to hear, but that you, Holy Spirit, make it very clear what we need to hear this day. Even if it's something beyond the words that I'm using. So move and work as only you can. We commit ourselves in this time into your hands now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have noticed this is part three as we get back to the series in uh, End Times 101. This is part three of Thy Kingdom Come, Thy Will Be Done and dealing with Jesus coming and establishing His millennial kingdom that we see both in Revelation 19 as He's coming and in Revelation 20, the actual kingdom and those reigning with Him. It's not today just merely a review to look back to try to bring us back up to speed, nor is it a summation of what has happened. We've already had... Two messages, encourage you if you have missed those to look those over because today will be slightly different than even those of things that I've not yet talked about regarding this passage and overall an overview, uh, even as it deals with interpreting uh, end times passages in general. But if we were to just boil it down today to say what is the point what is the message that God wants to get across today? I believe it would be this. We believe Jesus is literally coming back. Now, we, we just sang, with the song that we sang, we believe, and all those beliefs at the very end, and we believe that he's coming back again. But I would say not just that he's coming back again, but he is literally coming back again. Uh, last week, uh, we covered things that was perhaps seen more as, as of, of preaching. And this week may seem a little more like teaching. There's a variety that goes on. But there will also be some things here today that maybe you haven't heard, maybe you've not thought of, that will uh, challenge us in our thinking just a little bit. And uh, we'll deal with some basics and uh, things, foundational issues, but we'll go... Even beyond that, and I hope, uh, my hope is that in these things that generally are not uh, preached, so to speak, but taught, uh, would get through to us even as we work through this series. We'll finish up by the end of this month. So we're saying we believe Jesus is literally coming back. And I heard a number of you kind of amens or whatever uh, that was being said, yes, yes, and all that kind of thing. But somebody's probably thinking, well, duh. Yeah, I mean, we believe this. We've already been talking about this. Jesus is literally coming back. Except for many people, even in churches in our area, it is not a duh. 
not everyone who calls themselves Christians, and, and let's not even try to divide in that way, not everyone who is a Christian saved would believe that Jesus is literally coming back. Now we're going to look at what that means and what I'm talking about. In fact, what does it mean to say that Jesus is literally coming back? So let's just start off with the first point, and that is Jesus will literally be here on this earth for all to see. Okay? This is where we depart from others. Jesus will literally be here on this earth for all to see. The second coming is not just figurative. It is not just spiritual. It is literal. It will really happen. When we read through Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 10, and I encourage you to write that down if you want to look through it, but basically it's talking about, he says, I want you to understand in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their evil desires. And basically part of the scoffing is basically they're saying, yeah, where is this coming? Where is this coming? He said, it's that we haven't seen it. Well, the reason we haven't seen it as we read in Second Peter 3 is uh, that God is not slow in bringing this about, and keeping his promises, some understand slowness, but rather he's being patient right now. The reason we have not seen, one of the reasons we've not seen, is that God is being patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So just because we have not seen it does not mean it will not happen, that Jesus will not come literally here. And obviously we know there are skeptics and, uh, and scoffers who not only don't believe Jesus is literally going to come, but they don't even believe Jesus. And, oh, and, and they would not necessarily believe what the Bible says. It's a book full of myths and man's religion. But even in that, obviously they have missed or not ever really looked to find evidence that is a contrary to that. But that's not what this message is about. Because it's not just among those who are unbelievers that do not believe that Jesus is literally coming back, but those who would say they believe God's word is true. Not just the Bible is a good book, which you will hear in some churches, the Bible is a good book, but to say that the Bible is God's book. Not just with good words, but God's words. Unfortunately, there are those who would say, yes, they are good words and there are uh, there is truth in the word of god like you know in the story of creation or noah's ark or about jonah and the big fish or the empty tomb and the resurrection or the second coming of christ these are truths that we need to know about but they would say they are not necessarily true in other words that they would literally have happened or will happen. And there is a difference there. And we need to grasp and be discerning. I've been trying to say this throughout this whole series of the End Times 101. And much of it is not just to learn about End Times 101, but to learn to think and to look at the Word of God and to discern what is being said. That it is God's Word that is both true and truth. These are his very words he intended for us. And we'll get more specifically into that a little later. But for us to understand, Jesus is literally coming back here on earth for all to see personally 
physically. And we need to be ready because his coming is near. That's what he tells us in Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. One of the words that we use to indicate this coming soon is to say that his coming is imminent. Everything is moving along according to God's plan. Jesus is coming back without unforeseen delay, meaning the reason he's not coming back. One of those is what I just mentioned from Second Peter 3 is he's waiting for those to come to repentance. Make sure that we're clear what we're talking about here is we're coming back. We would say that we believe there is a distinction between Jesus coming for his saints in the rapture versus Jesus coming with his saints at the second coming. Now, technically, Jesus does come in the clouds and we Uh, His people join him. But there is a second coming that we are talking about where he comes to this earth that is different from the rapture. Now, obviously, there are many that would not even go there regarding the rapture. But uh, and and if you want to know more about that, understand uh, back in this series, you can look it up online. Uh, There is a, a... messages that dealt with the original I'll be back uh, from Revelation 19, uh, including the one that says Jesus is coming back and it's not going to be the same. So I encourage you to look over that. But as we read Revelation 19, 11 through 16 here, as we read this account of, of the rider on the white horse, we know this is Jesus. We know this is talking about him and it's talking about that one who come down out of heaven to this earth And we believe that Jesus literally comes back to this earth in person, as it is saying right here in Revelation 19. Now, there are those that would say, and churches that say Jesus is coming, just not physically in person. Rather, they would spiritualize these passages and basically say that Jesus coming to this earth was through the Holy Spirit that came. Well, that's already happened. The Holy Spirit has come and the Holy Spirit is here with us. It cannot be something that is going to also happen later, what is described here in Revelation 19. We believe Revelation 19 is not just symbolic. We believe that Jesus is literally coming back to this earth personally, physically. And so did the disciples. So did the disciples because that's what they were told when Jesus left, when he was taken out of this earth. We read in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said this, talking about Jesus, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus... This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In the same way. Jesus did not suddenly just disappear. Rather, disciples literally, physically, personally saw him personally go up to heaven And therefore, we will see in that same way, literally, physically, personally, come down to earth. This is what's talked about in that connection of Revelation 19 with 
Zechariah 14. In Zechariah 14, verse 3 through 5, there will be a couple of slides here on this. Then the Lord will go out and fight against the nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. So that one half of the mount shall move northward, the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley on my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Eur. Then the Lord God will come and all the holy ones with him. Just as it's talking about in Revelation 19. But notice here, this is, it is talking about Jesus literally. It is talking about him coming to the earth literally, feet on the ground, visibly, physically, at the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is where Jesus left in Acts chapter 1. He left from the Mount of Olives. He will be coming back, literally, physically. It seems hard to imagine Zechariah 14 just being fulfilled in some spiritualized, symbolic way. In fact, it's hard to see the symbolic, spiritualized allegory that this is just a, uh, an allegory, a story with a message because that's the way some would look at the word it's just a story with a message that is not literal but just symbolic or or spiritual especially when his coming will be visible his second coming will be visible. We read this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. This is what's taking place in Revelation 19 as he comes down in that final battle, so to speak. We know there's still one happening with the devil yet. So let's establish right now that we believe what is going on in Revelation 19 and 20 regarding the end times is that Jesus' second coming will literally, physically, actually happen, which includes not just what I talked about, but point two, that Jesus will literally be ruling over all his people for a literal thousand years. As we finish chapter 19, we need to understand that in many ways it just flows right into chapter 20. The, did, did we understand that the verses and the chapter designations are things not God put in there, but man put in there to help us in that way? These, this is, so it's, we have a break between 19 and 20, but as far as it seems in the context and what God is talking about, this is not a break. Jesus comes down. There is a battle that takes place. He takes over and he sets up his kingdom in beginning with putting Satan, binding Satan and putting him away for a thousand years. And beginning that thousand year reign of Christ, which would be called the millennium. The millennium just means a thousand years. I mean, that's basically what the meaning of that word is. We read in Revelation what Jesus did. And that he will come and he will reign from Jerusalem, as it talks about in Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, from all of uh, long of what he is to be, even in the 
birth in Luke chapter 1. Check that out in verses 32 and 33. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it, in, as it is in heaven. We'll see its truest fulfillment yet in this second coming of Christ and the establishment of the millennium, the millennial reign. Now you've probably noticed that I've used a number of thousand years. I've mentioned, and it's come a thousand years and a thousand years, and that's because right here in chapter 20, even in just the very beginning of chapter 20, a thousand years is used six times. Do you think there might be something significant about a thousand years? But there are those who would read that and say it is just symbolic, it is not literal. So he just keeps saying a thousand years just because it means a very long time. No. We believe that Jesus will literally be ruling over all people for a thousand, for a literal thousand years. That is clearly stated that the millennial reign of Christ is literal, it will happen. And it is in a chronological order as we've gone through really many ways. We've gone through Revelation. Uh, if you followed us, I mean, sometimes we've gone back to Matthew and Jesus' words, but we've really gone through Revelation and just seen it. And we believe that it happens in a chronological way, but not everybody sees it that way, sees it happening. And yet, this is what God has talked about. Daniel in chapter 7, verse 13 14, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is everlasting dominion. It will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He comes and sets up His kingdom on this earth. And yet there are those who do not see this thousand-year literal reign of Christ happening and not happening chronologically in the way we've just talked about. In fact, there are three basic different views about the millennium, the thousand years, that affects a lot of other end-time matters. Each of these views would claim to be the oldest original view. Depending on who you read, you start reading their stuff, oh, we have the oldest and original view. No, we have it. No, we have it. You know what? It doesn't matter. Who has the biblical view? Who has God's view? That's what ultimately matters here. And it seems as far as people can tell, as far as I can tell, it seems as we're talking about this, as we're going to get into this, because some of this is going to be like, what? For some of you and others you kind of already know. Uh, but it seems as far as I've been able to tell so far, is that no one has been declared a heretic based on their eschatology or their end times uh, thinking, their beliefs about the end times. Many would believe like we do. Many of these, I said there's three different views. Many of them would believe what we do about a number of areas except as it deals with the study of last times or end times 101. But I believe that there is a chance that when one comes the way they do in a non-literal way towards the scripture, that you can begin to see a number of things differently than we do in God's word. Note each of these three basic views are differences. There are differences even within their own camp. So what I'm going to share with you here, it, it, I'm just going to give like hit the highlights, kind of expose you to those teachings without getting specific or even saying, well, this one kind of, there's some that believe this and that. Uh, 
and to understand the, the different, bigger picture. Some might be saying, well, yeah, but do we really need to know? I mean, listen, I, I'm not doing this for trivia's sake. I'm not really into just trivia and trying to, hey, let me give you a fact you never knew before. That way you can get a false sense that you're growing in Christ. That's not it. You know, I, I'm not into that. I'm giving this not only so that there can be some sense of discernment. We say, well, why, why do we need discernment? Well, there's probably one in a million chance I'm going to hear this from somebody. No, there is a much, much greater chance that you're going to be hearing this because this is the view of many people who you are listening to on the radio, on television, in the Internet, and reading their books. You just don't realize it. You don't realize it because you're not hearing the bigger picture of how they are looking at it. Instead, you're just hearing the specific things they're saying and thinking that's fine, but you're missing the bigger picture which directs them away from many of the things that we would say that we believe. In fact, if we're talking about what we believe in uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, we say the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent and will be personal, visible, and premillennial. It is literal. This is where we would come from. And... This premillennial view is one of three. Uh, is, there is a premillennial, the basics, the premillennial, a postmillennial, and an amillennial uh, view. We believe foundationally that Jesus literally is coming back again, and this second coming will take place before the literal millennium, before the literal thousand year reign of Christ on this earth begins, Jesus comes back. Therefore, you get how that is a pre-millennial view, a before the millennium. We believe Jesus comes before. But not everybody thinks that. In fact, I, I want to give you a, a quick snapshot over each of these things I've tried to put together so this is not something official. Uh, and it is through my uh, limited abilities to figure out how to do this, especially on uh, ProPresenter. So here we have a premillennial. You start with the cross is uh, the cross and the resurrection and Christ came. And then there becomes the church age. Well, we would say there is a tribulation that takes place. It's seven years. We literally, would be seven years. I put three R's on there because some are pre-rapture, uh, uh, mid-rapture, and post. You know, tribulation, post-tribulational as far as when they believe the rapture is. Uh, within those who may be premillennial. But then, after the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, we get to this Revelation 19 that we just read, where Jesus comes down on that white horse and takes over, right? This is the second coming, the little star that's there. And then begins the millennium, the thousand-year literal reign of Christ on the earth. And then, and, and I... When I saved it as a picture, I wish it looked better. That is saying the final judgment of unbelievers takes place at the, that's a, what do you think that is? Great white throne. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, it, uh, maybe it doesn't look like that, but it's a great white throne. And then we ha begin eternity, and I have a, arrows going up and down. Either you're going up or you're going down. Uh, as far as that goes, in a sense, that is when the new heaven, new earth. This is kind of a basic, there's more that could be put in there and, and more, but just kind of laying it out basic premillennial. Now, the other, the next view, the postmillennial, 
Notice something's missing. Uh, uh, like the tribulation, there really isn't a tribulation. They don't believe the tribulation or that it is completely different in the way they look at it. Some, uh, a few, both in this view and the next, would see the tribulation as having occurred after Christ was risen, but before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Don't worry about that for those of you. Uh, some of you get that, some of you don't, that's fine. But to understand that they, post-millennium, would say that the millennium takes place spiritually on earth and then Jesus comes. Now, here, there's more to it in the post-millennial. They would say that the millennium is not literally a thousand years. It just means a long time. Although, literally, the word millennium means a thousand years. But nonetheless, they would say the millennium is not literally a thousand years. It's just a long period of time. And it will take place on this, it takes place on this earth right now as the gospel through God's people is getting out more and more and lives are being changed and the world is becoming more and more Christian until everyone is a real Christian, not just you know saying everyone, but till everyone really comes to Christ, not only in name only, but when everyone, most everyone, all comes to Christ and it just becomes a Christian world, then we can say that Jesus is reigning over the earth He's reigning in the millennium. He is reigning over the earth spiritually from heaven. And then Jesus will come back when we reach this age of peace and prosperity. That everything will just get better and better and better and more and more Christian and, and it'll get better and there will be a, a new prosperity peace and prosperity and then the then jesus comes back and the new heaven and the new earth takes place now it it seems fairly obvious literally not only that the world is not becoming a better place but that even after two thousand years of the church sharing the good news of jesus it still has not taken over and been recognized over all the earth and had people bow their knee to Jesus as Lord. In fact, Paul describes the end times like this in 2 Timothy 3.1, but, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Not, there will be better and better times. There will be terrible times in the last days. There's more to this, but uh, we'll hit some of that in just a minute as we deal with the amillennial, or as some call an inaugurated millennialism. Uh, usually when you see an A in front of something, it means no, no millennium. You know, so we're thinking, well, they believe there's no millennium. That's not entirely true again. They would believe there's just not a literal 1,000 years but they would believe that in a sense this millennium that we're talking about, this period, this, this event, a millennium, began when Christ was raised from the dead, on the cross, raised from the dead, and that the millennium is currently taking place in the church age with Christ reigning spiritually with the saints who are in heaven. Now, I don't know if you 
caught the difference between the previous one and this one. The previous one and the post-millennial believes in millennium, but that it is happening in a sense spiritually on earth. This is spiritually in heaven. Christ is reigning, and those who are reigning with him are the saints who are already up there in heaven with him. And yes, we would say, yes, we agree that Jesus, who is God, is ruling on the throne. I mean, we, we would not disagree, but what we would say is that he is not yet ruling on the literal throne in a literal millennium kingdom for on this literal earth for a literal thousand years. The fact is, some in these two alternative views that I just shared, if they were pressed, would say, would just spiritualize all this and say, Christ is reigning now. He is reigning in our hearts. Yeah, for those who are believers, but that's not what the passages we just read literally say. For we believe that Jesus is literally coming back. You see, while both uh, post-millennial and amillennial do not see what we are looking at here in Revelation 20 as something to be taken literally. Uh, they were those who would say, and and here's the here's kind of a, a a kicker to this that maybe we don't always hear when we've talked about it is there are many in both the post-millennial and amillennial views who do believe that Jesus literally will come back, but he's not going to come back. Uh, if you see, if I go backwards, until all this other stuff, until that stuff has happened, and then the final judgment of all people, and then the new heaven and new earth will take place. They do believe he's coming back, but it's just at the very end of time to judge, and then we begin the new heaven and new earth. The different views... Those different views would, obviously you didn't see rapture in there. They don't, would not believe that there is a rapture, at least not in that term. Obviously God, Jesus has to gather the, the people together for judgment. So maybe he kind of does a little swing by and picks everybody up, uh, but they wouldn't call it a rapture. And it certainly wouldn't be a seven year or a literal tribulation or even a tribulation necessarily. Again, I, I'm not just teaching this uh, for trivia, but for discernment to think this through that there are perspectives on the end times, that these perspectives on the end times are not just something you should know, but you should be having discernment about because it affects other things that are being taught and how, not just what we think or what we believe in our doctrine, but how we live out our Christian life is affected by this. Let me give you a couple examples. First of all, is regarding Satan. What would we read here in Revelation 20? Hopefully you have your Bible still open or you have that and you recognize in Revelation 20 where it talks about an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss, holding his hand, a great chain. He sees the dragon, the serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Right? They're saying that is what's going to happen. We believe literally that is what is going to happen. But and that he will eventually be loosed. But those who do not believe in this literally, and obviously there are those who don't believe in a literal Satan, but we're not talking about them. 
we're talking about those who had those post and amillennial views, would not see any of this happening in chapter 20 here as literally happening. It's not going to happen in this way. That's not the way it is. This is just a spiritual description, uh, symbolic words that are used here because Satan, they would say both of these views, at least in the main part, both of those other two views would say Satan is already bound right now. Satan is bound right now. So what is described in Revelation 20 obviously is not considered chronologically, but just saying a a symbolic kind of description of Satan being bound, which happened with what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection. Obviously, what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection dealt a death blow to Satan, but that doesn't mean that he was done. We don't believe that he is done. But for them, he is bound between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We believe 1 Peter 5, 8, that says about the devil that he is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That doesn't sound like somebody who's bound. How can Satan be bound if he is a roaring lion going throughout the earth looking for someone to devour? That's not just about our doctrine or some teaching. This is about how we are living our Christian life. In fact, Ephesians chapter 6, we know, talks about the armor of God. But what does it talk about putting on the armor of God? Why? Because we are in a spiritual battle with the powers of darkness, with Satan and all of his minions. We believe that literally we are in this battle versus someone who would just say, you know what? Satan's already bound. This really affects how we live our Christian life, how we find our victory in this life, and how we fight or whether we fight. Let me give an uh, an example of uh, another difference and how that affects the way we think about things. Another difference between those that would come down to a practical effect is how Jesus is literally reigning on the little earth, that he will reign take his throne on this literal earth and will rule along with others, including the role of Israel. Israel as it deals with the prophecies and the promises in the Old Testament that have yet to be fulfilled. The majority, if not all of the post and all millennial views believe that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. They would come at this and what they believe that the church is the fulfillment of Israel. And so the fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled in this spiritual millennium era to and through the church. And Israel no longer holds any unique standing or purpose with God. Now, there is a slight difference among some on how they would think about this. While there are those who would definitely say, you know what? Israel had their chance and they lost it, period. And now everything goes to the church. Nonetheless, there are those in many in in these views that I just shared who would not use the language that the church has replaced Israel. Now, some would say that. But others would rather say the church is now the fulfillment of all that God has promised to Abraham through Jesus to bless the nations. And instead of Israel being set aside or replaced, rather the emphasis is that both the church and Israel are together as one. 
Israel's not out of the picture. It's just that Israel and the church all are the same and all together. All are the same to God. And therefore, all Israel and the church receive the promises spiritually that were made back then, not literally from God. Now, I could go on and talk about that view, but what happens is it, it is like this and so many other things. It might sound interesting and it sound like there could be some truth there, possibility. I mean, after all, the church and Israel are, in a sense, one. You know, the, the, the whole grafting in and all their sense that we're, we're one. And yet, we would believe that we are also distinct from Israel. At least in the premillennial view, the church and Israel, in the way we look at this. But when we do not look at the prophecies literally, like some would, then the whole unfulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament, at least those who are those unfulfilled prophecies and promises of the Old Testament that are not unconditional or uh, that. Well, I'm not talking the ones that were like, hey, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you don't, then I'm not going to do this or anything like that. I'm talking about those things that are unconditional, those things that God said, hey, this has nothing to do with you. This has to do with me. It's my promise. It doesn't matter. Those still exist in the Old Testament, but those other views would take those things as just spiritual fulfillment that takes place, which is kind of ironic and in sense contradictory. I think, because in some places, Israel's judgment came from certain prophecies that were given. When they did this, this happened to them. There are certain prophecies, I'm not going to get into specifics, but there are certain prophecies that basically saying, listen, uh, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go temporarily into exile here's what's happened you're 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 gonna get disciplined but there will come a time where you will come back now here's the thing when the other two views look at that you can't deny that the prophecy that prophecy initially was fulfilled literally against Israel. They literally went into captivity. They literally were judged. They literally had that prophecy, half of that prophecy already fulfilled in the future. Now, prophecy is something that's taking place in the future. So in that future, Israel actually literally happened to them. There is a second part of those that has not yet happened. But now... We're supposed to interpret those spiritually. Even though the first half was literal, now this second half is going to be spiritual? That is not consistent in those things that were not completely fulfilled, including the restoration. These other two views look at at times, and, and really as they look at Scripture in a sense, you know, as they think through this, They're missing the other half of the positive of the blessings of God that have yet to fully take place, literally, by them just looking at everything non-literally as it's applied to the church. Missing the blessed status of Israel and the word of God and the scriptures, speaking of God restoring Israel to its rightful place physically and her place prominently. As we look at God's word 
these, there are those things that are not just temporary or conditional promises. And what seems to be unconditional promises, like, for example, the one to Abraham. I think I have it here. Let me go on. Genesis 13, 14 uh, and 15. The Lord said to Abraham after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the lands that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. He goes on a little bit later. God goes on in Genesis 17. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And then then there's the whole thing about the unconditional promise of the throne of David's line, like in Psalm 89 and many other scriptures of fulfillments that have yet to be seen, including promising peace across the board between Israel and all the nations, like in 2 Samuel 7. Those things have not happened yet. So when will they happen? We're going to say it's going to happen in heaven because that's not going to matter then. There is a place in time, and that is the millennium, the thousand-year literal reign of Jesus, where there will be the prophecies, opportunity for prophecies to fulfill literally to Israel. The things that have not taken place in the present state or will take place in heaven, on earth. I don't know if you can catch how someone is looking at the scriptures in the big picture. They can talk to you about something specific and it sounds right, but in the big picture, they are coming from a hermeneutics, that's a fancy word to say how we interpret the Bible, that affects the application to today's world and much of the scripture that is there, and even as it deals with Israel. Even as you think through this, that these views have become more and more prevalent in our Christian society here in America through the people that I'm talking about who are good. I've read and used and looked at the material. I'm not saying they're heretics in any way, but they are presenting things that come from a completely different, non-literal view that misses all of this that we're talking about here, even as it deals with Israel and church. And, And I wonder if that's why it seems to me that there are more and more Christians today, especially those who are younger, who have seemed to be less inclined to support Israel, in fact, even to be anti-Israel, despite biblical passages to the contrary. Now, why are they doing that? In part because they do not see the Scriptures and God's plan applying literally to Israel anymore. Obviously, some today are not looking at the word of God. Instead, they're looking at what they hear on the news and being influenced by that. And, and, and I can understand having a hard time sometimes wrapping our heads around and understanding Christian support of Israel today. But we miss the scriptures of yesterday if we don't. Please note, I, I, I know that there are some Christians who just don't get what that means in the positive sense of support. That somehow there are Christians that are portraying Israel today as innocent and righteous in their behavior and everything they do. But Israel is not perfect and innocent today any more than it was throughout the Old Testament. Or any more than the United States of America is. 
It's not that somehow they have done everything right or earned or deserved God's favor, but rather, as Deuteronomy 7 and other places, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the faith of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest. But it's because the Lord loved you and kept an oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. The Israel, and, and understand that we're talking about Israel in the millennium and what will take place in the fulfillment of those scriptures to understand that that Israel, just like everybody else in the millennium, will be those who have bowed their knee to Jesus Christ as Savior, as Messiah. They will be believers, especially at, towards the end, what we believe at, towards the end, before he comes of a great revival amongst the Jewish people coming back to the true Messiah. And so when we look at these passages in Revelation 19 and 20, and think, why, why, why did these Christians, why don't they believe this? Why, why don't they see it, what's written literally right here, and even in chapter 20, where it talks about not just what happens to Satan, but where it, it, it says that Jesus is going to worship, is going to rule right here. That Jesus is going to rule over this earth, on this earth. It's because they don't, it's not because they don't see it in the passage. It's because they are looking through different glasses. They see it differently. They do see it. But in the big picture way with uh, notions that are already preconceived about what it means. The foundation on the end times built upon interpreting differently prophetic things. As non-literal, as spiritual versus seeing things as literal. I, I understand. To understand part of this is is even a greater or a bigger issue and that is how we interpret the word of God and we would say that we interpret the word of God even when we say literally we don't mean literally literally in the sense of my how time flies and we actually see a clock going by we understand figures of speech we understand that there are things within the word of God that do have symbolic when uh, when uh, John the Baptist is, is in a sense called Elijah, we don't think that Elijah has somehow been resurrected and come back to life and that it's not really John the Baptist. It's really, no, we understand that. But what we're saying is that what is the literal plain meaning in the word of God is what? we would interpret that if there is a spiritual meaning, a symbolic meaning, the context will make that clear. Not only the context that is right there, but within the whole Bible. It, the context it is that which makes it clear uh, on what the meaning and what it is saying and, and not to and confuse. And, and so many times what we have is 
There are people that we're listening to that are jumping right to telling you this is what it means to you. They're giving you the application, but not giving you the interpretation. The interpretation needs to take place before the application. And all of this is just getting to the point, I'm sure, where some of you are like, what? This is starting to, my head's starting to explode. Uh, And I understand that. But there, there are things that God has talked about and how we read, how we interpret the Bible, the historical, grammatical interpretation of the word of God, the regular, plain, literal meaning matters. And how the people that we're listening to and reading, it matters because it affects all the way out. But unfortunately, so many times, Christians are just like, Oh, wow, I really like this, this author. I really like listening to this person because they just, they're so exciting. And they're, they're doing it because of the personality. They're doing it because of, of, uh, uh, of, because of, and many times, because, wow, they're, they're, they're just saying stuff I never heard before. More excited, you know. There are some people that are more excited to know the Bible than they are to know the God of the Bible. And, and you got somebody saying, hey, there, there's too many. Finally, finally, I, uh, there's, this is something deep in the word of God, which is not a biblical word and not a biblical meaning in the way it's used in the current Christian churchianity. There's just something deep in the word of God you never heard of before. Okay, I got to hear that. I want to know that. Yes, oh, that sounds, that, that, I, that, that sounds good. I mean, that's, that doesn't seem to contradict what I've heard uh, before, but... Is it literally what the passage is saying needs to be looked at? Not just that we've added in these things. I mean, this is how cults are formed. There should be flags that go up when somebody says, I've got a fuller, deeper meaning for you than you've ever known before. And you've been in church all your life. Now, I recognize it is possible. Because we've not listened or we've been in a place that didn't give us a whole lot, but. It's also possible that there should be something going up to say, wait a minute, some discernment being used about whether this is God's interpretation for this that we're hearing. Because otherwise, we can say we believe Jesus is coming back, but it's just spiritually, and it's not until like the very end and all the rest of the stuff that we've talked about in the end times one one none of that really happens. Or we can say, we believe that Jesus is literally coming back, literally to this earth for a literal 1,000 years to literally reign over all the literal earth. What we hear, what we believe matters. Worship can come. Let's get ready to come before the Lord. Jesus, as we come before you in communion, we recognize for us, we understand that there is symbolism in the cup and the bread, but you tell us that. And we believe As opposed to some people, we believe, Jesus, that you literally came to this earth, that you literally died on the cross for our sins. You took our place, our punishment, so that we could have a place with you in heaven. 
And we believe that not only did you die on that cross, but that you rose again from the dead and that you are alive today and even alive within us right here, right now. And we want to celebrate that as we come before you. That we believe this. Not just some spiritual thing. Not just some symbolic thing. It is literally both truth and true. On all that you've done for us and we want to say thank you. And so we ask you even now. As we get ready to take of the bread. That you would bless this. That you would bless this time and draw us deeper into you. Lord, if there is anything in our life that needs to be made right before you, whether it be the things that we're doing that we should not or the things that we should be doing, whether it be about our attitudes, uh, our hearts, Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit. Show us, but then give us the power to overcome. Thank you. Thank you. For all that this bread means and all that you've done. And so on that night that Jesus betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And that same night, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. We recognize the power in the blood of Jesus to save us. But there is power in the blood of Jesus to sanctify us, to make us who he wants us to be. We do not have to do this on our own. And so on that night, Lord Jesus, we recognize what you did and we ask that you would bless this cup in this time. On that night, Jesus blessed the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. It's for you. Take and drink.